with me at 1 Corinthians 13. Just want to remind us, and this is something I plan to do on a regular basis this year, um, because in light of all that we've experienced last year and in light of what is likely to go on this year, it's just helpful to kind of uh, review every week something that just kind of summarizes how God wants us to respond to what's going on in our lives and what's going on in our country. And so when we ask the question, what does God want from us? That question can be answered uh, in a summary fashion in terms of trust and love. Trust and love. And so the trust aspect obviously has to do with two things. It has to do with dealing with our guilt and our sin, trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of his righteousness, which we call pardon and perfection. But it also involves hope. That because I'm reconciled to God, I'm now looking to God for the help I need and the happiness my heart longs for. And the reality is, as things get more difficult in this country in various ways, it's going to question where we're looking for our help from. And where, was it the government or something, someone else? Or where we're looking for our happiness? Is it in God or is it outside of God? And then love... Trust is to lead us to love like God does. We trust God and his promises to lead us to love like God loves. And that love requires two things. It requires a submission to God's word because that's how we know what God's love looks like. He tells us what it looks like by commanding us to live a certain way. But it's in real life circumstances. Therefore, we have to submit ourselves to God's will, whatever that looks like. And right now, for us in this country, it's a it's a Biden administration, and it's a COVID um, crisis. That that's what we have to submit ourselves to and seek to trust and love in the midst of. And so, First uh, Corinthians thirteen is one of those great chapters in the Bible that expound what love looks like. We're called to trust, we're called to love, but we need to be reminded of what that truly looks like. So let me just read for us again this chapter. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor... And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. 
But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. So at the beginning of 2021, what we're encouraging each other to keep in mind is that one of the most important things that we need for this year, in light of all that's going on, is patient love. Someone has said, uh, you cannot invoke the gods of chaos without getting the gods of chaos, which means we are reaping to some degree what we've sown in our country. Someone else has said there's um, it's something that's been called a Chinese proverb, but a lot of people have said it's not really a Chinese proverb, but it, somebody said it at one point. For some reason, it's been attributed to the Chinese, but it's basically, may you live in interesting times. And interesting means... Uh, typically bad. It's it's been taken as a curse. And there's no doubt for a lot of us, we think about what's going on in our country and we would call it interesting times. And we don't mean interesting as, wow, I'm really enjoying this movie kind of interesting. It's more of, oh, I can't believe this is going on and what is coming next interesting. Well, God wants us to respond with patience. And it takes the grace of God to do just that. There was a monk that went to a monastery, and he took a vow of silence. And after 10 years, he appeared before his superior, and the superior said, Okay, uh, you may speak. What would you like to say? And the monk said, Food, bad. So he spent 10 more years uh, in silence, and he came back before his superior, and the superior said, Okay, what would you like to say? Bad, hard. He spent 10 more years in silence, came back, and uh, Sphere said, what would you like to say? He said, I quit. <laughs> and the Sphere said, well, it doesn't surprise me a bit. Since you got here, all you've done is complain. <laughs> it's a humorous story about the fact that we tend to be a lot like the monk. When we get the opportunity to speak, oftentimes what comes out of our mouth is a kind of complaint. The question is, um, can that be a serious thing? Can that be no laughing matter? And it kind of depends on what the complaint is. There are uh, complaints that are legitimate complaints. So not all complaining is sinful. But there is a complaint, a kind of complaining, that is ultimately and inappropriately directed at God, whether we realize it or not. And that's why you have in the Bible um, stories like what we find in Exodus 17, where it says that um, the people of Israel were traveling according to God's command, and he told them to uh, go to a particular place. And this place he told them to go to was a place with no water. So God was leading them in their journeys in the wilderness, and he brought them to a place with no water. And as a result, uh, the people began complaining to Moses and saying, give us water that we may drink. And Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? I can't give you water. What are you talking about? Um, He says, why do you test the Lord? And it says the people thirsted for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so you see what's going on here. God's directing their paths. He's leading them on their journey. 
He's brought them to a place with no water. And their response is, they're complaining about where God has put them. And they're despairing. They're saying, you're killing us. And what the interesting thing is about this story is, God doesn't strike them down. What he says is, he tells Moses, go to this rock. And he says, I'm going to, actually it says this, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. That is a picture of Christ. It actually says in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the rock, they drank from a spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. And if you think about how God told Moses to do what he did, he said, I will stand before you on the rock. I will stand on the rock, and you will strike the rock, and the water will come out. That was a picture of the cross that Jesus was going to be struck. The rock was Christ, and it would take the striking of the rock for living water to come out. So what was God's response to their complaining, to their basically saying, God, you're trying to kill us? He provided an atonement in Christ for that kind of complaining. There's the same kind of thing in Numbers 21 when it says the people became impatient because of the journey. And they again said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? It's amazing how many times the children of Israel accuse Moses and God of trying to kill them. (laughs) You know, you're leading us on this journey, but you're really trying to kill us. And at this point, God actually sends fiery serpents to bite them and to kill them. And they began saying, please, Moses, do something, intercede for us. And he does, and God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze serpent. I want you to put it on a pole. And I want you to tell the people that if they get bit, that they're to look to that bronze serpent. And if they look to that bronze serpent, they will live. Jesus uses that very picture in the New Testament in John 3, right before one of the most famous verses in the Bible, before John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right before that, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So it was in the context, again, of a people complaining about how God was orchestrating their lives, that God actually gives them a picture of his provision of forgiveness in Jesus, which I'm very thankful for, because Numbers 11, verse 1, talks about how the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. Now, isn't everything in the hearing of the Lord? Doesn't God hear everything? So what does it mean in the hearing of the Lord? I think it means it's ultimately directed toward the Lord. They're complaining about life in God's orchestration of their lives. And why does God take that so seriously? Because it says something about his character. It says something about his wisdom, about his love, about his goodness. It's an attack on his person. It's an undermining of our trust 
it's an undermining of our love because if God really isn't what he says he is, then how can he call us to be like him? And so it's more important that we realize um, if you look in a Bible encyclopedia or dictionary and you look up the word murmur, sometimes the word murmur is used in the Bible. And murmur is uh, one of those words that kind of sounds like what it's talking about. It's like mumbling under your breath, you know, You've probably done that when you were a teenager. You know, just about every teenager learns how to mumble under their breath when they're not too happy without how things are going. And you know there's a complaint in there somewhere. And that's what murmur means. But it's been defined as mutterings of disaffected persons. What's a disaffected person? doesn't mean one who's no longer infected. It actually means someone who is infected. Uh, a disinfected person is someone who's basically unhappy with those in authority. Mutterings of disaffected persons. They're uh, unhappy with those in authority. And it's used in the Bible in terms of being unhappy with, dissatisfied with, discontent with the highest authority, who is God being unhappy with how he's orchestrating our lives. Well, let me just remind us of the definition that we're working with. The definition we're working with is patience is trusting and loving. So it's not just doing nothing or just sitting around doing nothing. It's actually doing something, in particular trusting and loving as God has called us to. In the unplanned place, at the unplanned pace, that's what, 2020 certainly was, and what 2021 probably will be, with difficult people, which is what we talked about last week, especially, and uncomfortable circumstances, which is what we want to focus on this week. It's trusting and loving, even in difficult circumstances. And as I've reminded you, the word patient there in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is a combination of the word long and the com- and the word um, tempered, long tempered and it's the idea tempered could also be passion long passioned it's the idea of endurance staying in there not walking away not giving up it's the idea of endurance and the issue of suffering and so it's not just the idea of just waiting around it's the issue of responding well for a long time in the face and in circumstances of suffering. You can't be patient without suffering. By definition, you have to have suffering to exercise patience. And therefore, the very first thing that Paul talks about, about love, is actually how we respond to suffering. And whether that suffering comes through difficult people or through difficult circumstances, and normally it's a combination of the two. And so um, John Piper talks about it in this regard. He says, Impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. It springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. It may be prompted by a long wait in a checkout line or a sudden blow that knocks out half our dreams. The opposite of impatience is not a glib denial of loss. 
It's a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience. And that's where I get that phrase is from John Piper. To wait in his place and go at his pace. And the key is faith and future grace. And when he talks about future grace, he means the promises of God that God has made to us in Christ. He says, impatient complaining is therefore a form of unbelief. So when we think about patience with regard to circumstances, we have to ask ourselves, uh, what does it look like? And the first thing to say is what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like simply just grin and bear it or just endure it. Nor does it look like uh, proud defiance. There's a man that many of you might be aware of named William Ernest Henley, who uh, actually was an atheist. Uh, he lost his dad early in life. He lost one of his legs early in life. He almost lost his other foot. And uh, he lost a daughter early as well. And he wrote a poem, a very famous poem called Invictus. Invictus means in Latin, unconquered or unconquerable. And his poem goes like this. Out of the ninth that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, it, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So what was his response as an atheist to hard, difficult circumstances? He basically defies everyone and anyone, including any God there may be, and says, bring it on, I can take it. You don't scare me. I'll be just fine. That is a proud defiance. The reality is that is not any of those things, just grin and bear it or proud defiance. Neither one of those things are how God calls us to respond to difficult circumstances. Um, we can think about it in terms of these four things. Um, God, first of all, wants us to identify his hand in our circumstances. Secondly, then he wants us to trust him and to wait for him to fulfill his purposes and his promises. He wants us to take one day at a time and trust him for his grace one day at a time. And he wants us to be encouraged by looking at other people and seeing how they are patiently trusting God in their difficult circumstances. And so let me begin with the first first point, identifying God's hand in your circumstances. Um, earlier this morning, um, Sean mentioned the book of Lamentations. In Lamentations 3, it says, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? 
There's a story in the Old Testament about David when he's being chased from Jerusalem by his own son Absalom, who wants to overthrow his own father and become king. So David is leaving Jerusalem. This is found in Second Samuel 16. And there's a man from the house of Saul who is basically throwing rocks and accusing David of all kinds of things and, and taunting him as he leaves Jerusalem. And he's basically saying, you're getting what you deserve. God is bringing judgment on you for what you did to Saul in the house of Saul. And, and some of David's men say to David, let me go over there and kill that guy for what he's doing. He's cursing you. He has no right to curse you. And David says, what am I going to do with you guys? Don't you know that God has told him to do that? If God has told him to do it, let him do it. May God have mercy on me. The way David looked at that, that what was coming from Shammai's mouth, was in a sense something that God had ordained. God had said needed to happen. Just like it says in the book of Lamentations. And so David very clearly looked at the things that were happening to him, both in terms of people and in terms of circumstances, as from the hand of God. In Ecclesiastes, it says, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. And so Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, says, Every person is in the hand of God, and their circumstances are in the hand of God, whether it's something good or something bad. It's all something that is in the hand of God. And that's why Peter, in 1 Peter, which is a book about suffering, says in 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. What does that mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? That means to submit to God's sovereign will in your life, to submit to his providence, to submit to God's hand in your circumstances. Um, Again, it was said, patience is the capacity to wait and to endure without murmuring and disillusionment, to wait in the unplanned place and endure the unplanned pace. There's a story about um, a young girl named Marie Durant. You may remember she was one of the French Huguenots. And um, she was called upon by the, the government to reject her faith. And she refused to. And she was only 14 years old. And so she and 38 other women were put into this tower. And for 38 years, she was locked up in this tower. And she died there. Only 14. She was, could have been married, beautiful young girl, had her whole life before her, but she chose to not reject her faith, not deny Christ, to suffer the rest of her life in one room with 38 other women, and she died that way. And one of the things that was left on the wall by those women, including Marie, was the one simple word, resist. They called on her to reject Christ. They wrote, we will resist your call to reject Christ. And someone has commented on that and said, 
We do not understand the terrifying simplicity of a religious commitment which asks nothing of time and gets nothing from time. We can understand a religion which enhances time, but we cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporal hope that tomorrow things will be better. To sit in a prison room with 30 others and to see the day change into night and summer into autumn, to feel the slow systemic changes within one's flesh, the drying and wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the stiffening of the joints, the slow stupefaction of the senses, to feel all this and still to persevere seems almost idiotic to a generation which has no capacity to wait and to endure. There's a kind of denying Christ in which we're called to reject our faith. And governments do call people to do just that in various ways. But we also have to be careful of another way of rejecting Christ, and that is rejecting his hand in our circumstances. Because the reality is we are experiencing what we're experiencing with COVID-19, with the chaos and the riots and the election and everything that's happening. It's from the hand of God. Now, does that mean we don't care about sin, that we don't care about righteousness? No, it doesn't mean that. Don't want to take it further than we should, but it does mean we need to see it as from the hand of God. Uh, Thomas Akempis said, He deserves not the name of patient who is only willing to suffer as much as he thinks proper and for whom he pleases. The truly patient man asks nothing from whom he suffers, whether he is superior, is equal, or is inferior, but from whomever or how much or how often wrong is done to him, He accepts it all as from the hand of God and counts it gain. Put those two things together. Accepts it from the hand of God and sees it as a good hand. Counts it gain. That's why Spurgeon could say, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Spurgeon could say, there is a greater trial than um, sickness and disappointment and even physical torture. The greater trial is believing that those things are happening and God isn't involved. God isn't sovereign over that. God hasn't sent it to me for my good. That's the greater trial, as if that was the reality of those things. That's why Charles Simeon, on his deathbed, could say, Infinite wisdom has arranged the whole with infinite love, and infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. I am in a dear Father's hands, All is secure. The Israelites keep saying, you're killing me. Charles Simeon says, yeah, I'm dying, but I'm in a dear father's hands. Everything is okay. I can trust him. And that's why it's interesting. You read the book of Job, and Job could say, 
things regarding the hand of God. He could say in Job 19, Pity me, pity me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. He knew that God was very much in charge of his suffering. But most of the book is about him complaining and accusing God of doing something wrong. In the end, God corrects him gently, kindly, mercifully, does him good through it. But the whole book is about him wrestling with the fact that God wasn't managing his life very well. And so just knowing that God's involved and God's in charge and in some sense God has sent us afflictions isn't enough. We have to trust that that hand is a good hand, that he is truly doing us good by what he sent us. And that's point number two. Not only identify God's hand in your circumstances, believe that his hand is actually the one giving it to you, but that he is fulfilling his purposes and his good purposes and fulfilling his good promises to you and to me. That's why it says in James 5, and uh, that's why I have that picture up there. That's, that's a guy sowing seed. He's a farmer. If you kind of wondered what that old guy in the picture was doing, he's actually sowing seed. And James in James 5 uses the picture of a farmer when he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. But the reality is, trusting God means trusting him when we don't have all the information. We don't know all that God knows. We don't know all that God is doing. We don't know why certain things have to happen for other things to happen. There's another um, legend about Moses. And Moses sitting by a well one day just meditating. And a guy comes along and he gets some water out of the well. And Moses is watching all this. The guy gets some water out of the well. And while he's sitting at the well, his purse, we would say his wallet, fell out of his pocket. And he goes on. Another guy comes along. He gets some water out of the well. He notices the purse or the wallet on the ground. He picks it up, looks in in it, and sees a bunch of money, puts it in his pocket, walks off. Another guy comes along, gets some water out of the well, decides to lay down and take a nap. The first guy realizes he lost his wallet, goes back to the well, wakes the guy up and says, Hey, where's my wallet? And they get into a fight because the guy who was sleeping had no idea what he was talking about. And ultimately, the first guy kills the third guy over this argument. Moses sees all this and he begins having a conversation with God. And he says, You see, therefore men do not believe you. There is too much evil and injustice in the world. Why should the first man have lost his purse and then become a murderer? Why should the second have gotten a purse full of gold without having worked for it? The third was completely innocent. Why was he slain? Why, why, why? All this is happening. Why is it happening? Well, as the story goes, God says, I will give you an an explanation. I cannot do it at every step, but basically I'll do it this time. He said, the first man was a thief's son. 
The purse contained money stolen by his father from the father of the second man, who, finding the purse, only found what was due him. The third was a murderer whose crime had never been revealed and who received from the first the punishment he deserved. In the future, believe that there is sense and righteousness in what transpires, even when you do not understand. It's simply a story that says there's more to the story than what we know. Life is his story, history. It's his story. It's God's story. There's more to the story than we know. And so it all comes down to not only knowing that God's hand is behind our circumstances individually, as a church, as a family, as a nation, but that it's a good hand, that we can trust him in light of all that he's doing. Colossians 1 says that we're to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Someone has commented on that verse and said, the way that we are patient is by trusting in God's glorious might. Glorious might in what sense? Glorious might in the sense of his power to turn all our detours and obstacles into glorious outcomes, to transform all our interruptions into rewards, to know that God is at work for good with unseen purposes when all we can see is evil and frustration, that he's able to turn the unplanned place and the unplanned pace into the happiest ending imaginable that it is in God's sovereign purpose to bring something magnificent to pass. That is the key to patience. It's trust in a good and sovereign God. That's why we often sing the song by William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way as wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. The point of the song is we are prone to misinterpret what God is doing. We're prone to think the worst of God, just like we're prone to think the worst of people. And God says, you can trust me. I'm better than you know. We're just saying that. I'm better than you know. I'm more loving and kind and merciful and gracious than you'll ever fully understand. But faith is what life is about, is trusting me, even when things seem chaotic and out of control and seem to be working against you when they're really working for you. And that's why Joseph could say to his brothers at, toward the end of his life, his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
We may look at people in, in power in Washington and say, what they're doing is something that they mean for evil, according to my definition. According to what I believe is evil, I believe they mean what they're doing and what they're saying for evil. And that may be true. But God means it for good. The good of his people. The glory of his name. The salvation of souls. The sanctification of his body. So whatever may come this year from our government, local, state, federal, from other people, from whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, there, there will be real people who mean evil, who do evil. But our God is sovereign and our God is good. And for us as, he, as his people, he means it for good. And we can trust what God meant by it, regardless of what they mean by it. Let's pray. Father, we just pray and ask that you'd help us this year to trust you in greater ways than we ever have before. As things seemingly are less certain and less reliable than they've ever been before in our country, where things seem to change from day to day and we wonder what tomorrow will hold, we thank you that you do hold tomorrow and that you are sovereign and good And regardless of what people might mean in terms of doing us evil, consciously or unconsciously, we thank you that we can trust you for what is good. Help us to identify your hand in everything. Help us to believe that you're up to good in our lives because we're your people. And if you would not withhold your only son from us, you would not spare your only son, then you certainly would not withhold any good thing from us. And you certainly would not allow anything ultimately to truly hurt us. We thank you, Father. We thank you. We can trust you. Please help us to rest in you, Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. Grant us grace to hope in you, Father, for our help and our happiness. Help us to submit ourselves to your word and to your will. And may you receive much glory in our lives this week and this year. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.